she all done? Where's she at? You know, I, I wonder as we're singing that last song, Good, Good Father, how many churches across the United States are singing Good, Good Father on Father's Day? I think it's, it's got to be, but it's such a great song. I love it. Our Father is really good. Well, we are going to continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be, we're in Matthew chapter 18, and we're looking at verses 21 through 35. If you need a Bible, fills up. He's got Bibles in his hand, and he'll bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. And as you're turning there, you know, I always like to have like a Father's Day video or something that, that, that uh, I can show you folks. And uh, so I go online, I'm looking at these, and it's like, I'm bawling halfway through. I'm going, okay, oh, little girl, dad, and the girl gets bigger and gets married and the kids, and they go, I'm not showing this. I don't want to cry like a blubbering idiot. No. Uh, <laughs> But but I did find a video that I thought is pretty funny. And so we're going to show this. It's, uh, it's called Super 8 Dad Video. Hey, look, Dad. There's some footage with you in it, which is pretty rare since you like to be behind the camera. There you are feeding me some ice cream while something is definitely going on with that shirt collar. Hey, remember that time that you were filming us and Missy hit me with that jump rope thing? See, watch, here she goes. Three, two, one, boom. My dad was really hurt, but I cried and said, Missy hit me. See, watch my lips. Missy hit me. <laughs> you pointed and said, go hit her right back. So I did. But look, it wasn't your best advice. That's okay. Well, let's face it, you were balancing a career, a marriage, and the most time-consuming of all, being a dad. And we knew how to push your buttons. We were experts at crying for no reason. In the same way, there's no reason to spin that in front of me. It will make me come after you, sis. Anyway, I'm thankful that you stuck with us and didn't stop. You didn't stop showing grace. You didn't stop loving us where we were. You didn't stop filming your son when he basically curled up into a ball of tears. <laughs> the sacred dad rule. Keep the camera rolling. To all the dads out there, happy Father's Day. Thanks for letting us have a good cry for no reason. And then run off. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. You know, I see that merry-go-round. I think they, they've uh, outlawed those merry-go-rounds. But I remember when my daughter Annie was little, and I got her on the one here over by uh, Metter Park, and she was going pretty good, and I got it too fast, and she went flying off the thing and <laughs> cracked open. I think it was her lip or something. I felt horrible. I'm thinking, yeah, not my best decision. But anyway, happy Father's Day to you dads that are out there this morning. Father's Day is a day to celebrate our amazing dads, and you know, it's about superhero dads who've loved us unconditionally and, and, uh, no matter what. You know, dads that throw tea parties for the little girls and teach the little boys to, to play baseball and dads who comfort us and build us up and, and celebrate with us. Dads who have pointed us to Jesus Christ. 
Now, not all dads are superhero dads, and, and maybe your father was abusive, maybe your father wasn't around, maybe you've never met your dad, maybe your father cheated on your mom, maybe you've never had a, maybe you've had a heart of bitterness and towards your dad for years. Well, I think that's the, the reason why we're here this morning in the text that God has given to us, because Jesus has some words on forgiveness for all of us. That's why the title of my study is Forgive Till It Hurts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, to be in your word, knowing, Lord, that you have something to say to each one of us. And so, Lord, we as your children, you as our father, Lord, we want to be attentive to all that you have for us today. Help us to be good listeners. Help us to to hear, Lord, and apply these truths to our lives that we might honor you with our lives. We do pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their life to you, they're not born again yet, Lord, would you especially touch their life today, Lord, that they would see their need for a Savior and they would turn to you this morning. So we thank you for our time together. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was Archibald Halt who said, Forgiveness is surrendering my right to hurt you for hurting me. See, we started this chapter out with the disciples, asking Jesus the question, who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus then, throughout this chapter, chapter 18, uh, seeks to answer that question. And he says, if you truly want to be great in the kingdom of, of God, then, then there's three main ingredients. And these are our three points this morning, if you're taking note. Number one, there must be humility. Number two, there must be honesty. And number three, there must be forgiveness. Number one, humility. Look back at verse 3 of chapter 18. Jesus said, Assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And we looked at last time together how, uh, actually two weeks ago, how certain characteristics that children have are are needed for us to have in our everyday lives. Trust was one of them. Dependence was another one of them. Just as a child is dependent upon their father and mother, their parents, if we want to be great in God's kingdom, we need to have that dependency upon God. Depend upon Him for everything. I think it's especially true if you want to be a godly father. Your wife and your children uh, should know you as a man who happily depends upon the Lord. And when they think about your strength, they always know that it comes from the Lord and you're, you're happy to let them know that your source and your strength does come from the Lord. See, a faithful Christian husband and father will not depend upon themselves, but will continually look to Christ for everything. We get in a dangerous place, guys, if you no longer are dependent upon the Lord, but instead starting to trust in yourself. Paul would put it this way in Galatians 3.3, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? See, childlike humility shows that in me there's no good thing. And it shows me how desperately I need Jesus Christ, how desperately I need to depend upon Him in my life. I need His power. I need His mercy. I need His grace. I need His forgiveness every day in my life. So we looked at if you want to be great in God's kingdom, we need to be dependent upon God. We also looked at a common quality that a little child has uh, and, and, and that we should have as well, and that's the desire to make other people happy. Kids love to do that. Oh, you know, here's my toy. They, they want to make other kids other people happy. And that's a special ingredient. I think it seems to be lost among adult Christians today. To actually take the time as you're coming into church to just say a little prayer and say, Lord, you know, I'm not going to, in the church 
for my will. I'm going to go in for your will to be done, Lord. And Lord, would you use me to help minister to someone at the church this morning, to help encourage someone at the church, help bring some joy and happiness into their life this morning. See, many times, uh, that's the heart of a child. It's a kind of humility that's so unique and so special. So why would then Jesus take so much time here in chapter 18 to show us what true humility is about? I think his purpose, obviously, was that he was preparing us for what he was going to cover next, and that is correction and church discipline. And that's why point number two is honesty. We need to have humility and honesty in dealing with correction in the church and church discipline. And we need to have our hearts in that humble place as we prepare our own hearts to be corrected. See, those of you that have been with us the last couple of weeks, we've noticed how Jesus went from a childlike faith, we looked at that two weeks ago, to last week, Jesus teaching us how to handle a sinning brother or sister within the church, how to reprove someone else. He moved from one right to the other. And I think he did that to show us that when we reprove or correct someone else, and honestly, that we need to do it with childlike humility. We looked at if a brother or sister is overtaken in a fault, in, in a sin, we are to first go one-on-one and confront them with that. And then during that personal time, one-on-one, we're able to share with that person what's going on, and, and prayerfully they'll repent and restoration is made. If that doesn't happen, then we looked at last week how you take two at the most three, you go and you present to this person again in the hopes that there's forgiveness, that, or there's a repentance, and and uh, you know, then, then the, the, we can forgive them. If they still don't listen, we looked at how we need to take it to the church. The third step, bring it to the leadership of the body in the church. And then when that person sins before the body, we pray that repentance would take place. Now, the reason I recap this is because I want to tie all of this into where we are at this morning in our study. Jesus first emphasized that you've got to have childlike faith. You've got to walk in a humble way. Directly after that, he teaches us how to walk in honesty and, and, and we may come a time to commit someone who's in sin. But here's why we need to learn humility and why we need to learn honesty because there may come a time where you may be the one or I may be the one needing the correction. So in learning how to correct others, we're actually preparing ourselves to be corrected. See, we assume that we looked at the, the portion of Scripture that when Jesus taught us how to reprove, it was to equip us to go help someone who's done wrong. But in fact, the reverse, uh, I think the entire mode of thinking, we find that it, that is the Lord who's preparing us for when someone comes to us and tells us, hey, brother, hey, sister, this is going on in your life. See, God brings us together for that true Christ-like accountability. You know, but, but how do we encourage that type of accountability? By being willing to listen when someone comes to you with an area in your life that needs to be addressed, that needs to be dealt with. It's only with that childlike faith that as they tell me what's in my life, what needs to be changed, that, I'm li- that I listen to them. And I am changed. But man, if, if I'm haughty and, and, and I'm proud, and I think, well, I'm, I'm, who are you to tell me? I mean, how long have you been a Christian? Two, two weeks? Oh, I've been a Christian for this long. You know what? Then, then there's something wrong with that way of thinking. We need to be those that are continually uh, coming to one another and, and find that accountability and humility and honesty and at that point, God can do great things with the church because why? It leads to forgiveness. Warren Wiersbe puts it this way. When we start living in an atmosphere of humility and honesty, we must take some risk and expect some dangers. Unless humility and honesty result in forgiveness, relationships cannot be mended and strengthened. And so that's what we're looking at. We're looking at forgiveness. 
And that's our third point, forgiveness this morning. The story I found of a couple that once upon a time in their marriage, uh, the, the husband Sam did something really stupid and his wife Nancy chewed him out for it. He apologized. They made up. However, from time to time, Nancy would mention what he had done. Honey, Sam finally said one day, why do you keep bringing that up? I thought your policy was forgive and forget. It is, Nancy said. I just don't want you to forget that I've forgiven and forgotten. (laughs) So what about forgiveness? I mean, if we've been sinned against, wouldn't it just be easier to let it go? Just to say, you know, I, I forgive you. Rather than going and confronting them with their sin, rather than grabbing two or three guys or witnesses to come, rather than taking it before the church and leadership, wouldn't it be just ready, I don't I just forgive them. No, it's not. And here's why. Accountability brings holiness within the church. If we're not accountable one to another, all sorts of sin can enter into the church. That's why when confronting someone in sin, as we said, Already, it needs to be done in three stages. You went to them, they didn't hear you. You brought two or three uh, to hear you out, a couple of friends. They still don't listen. Then you tell it to the church. Well, in the same way, administration of that forgiveness has to be done in stages as well. Let me explain. Let's say somebody sins against you. Immediately forgive them in your heart. It's the command from the Word of God. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Immediately, you forgive. That person sinned against me, God, I, I, I forgive them. Why is that? So bitterness doesn't arise in your heart and fester and fester. You say, Lord, I choose right now in the name of Jesus because you've forgiven me so much, I'm going to forgive that brother or that sister who sinned against me. That's step one. You deal with it in your heart between you and the Lord. Number two, you don't tell that brother or sister, hey, I forgive you. And they're staring at you going, for what? Why? You know, you got to tell them what you're forgiving them for. You have the responsibility to approach them and to confront them on the issue. They need to know. Perhaps they don't even realize what they've done is sin. You have the responsibility to give them the opportunity to say, oh, I'm so sorry, I apologize, please forgive me. Then step three, you tell them, man, I forgive you. You are forgiven. That's like a public declaration. Those are the stages of the administration of forgiveness. They've confessed, they've asked you for forgiveness, and you declare to them that you are forgiven. I forgive you. See, that's so important in dealing with sin within the church and bringing about restoration. Now, this brings us to verse 21 in our text. Verse 21 says, Then Peter, don't you leave verses that love verses that start that way? Because you know something funny is going to happen. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus has been dealing with the subject of forgiveness and reconciliation. So, Peter... You know, wonders, is there a time when enough is enough? And Peter's thinking here, he's really being generous, suggesting seven times, because the rabbis at that time, they said, you only go three times. Three times you forgive, if that's it, then you're done. Peter says, I'll take that three, I'll double it, and I'll add one more on top for good measure. Lord, what do you think about me forgiving seven times those that sin against me? And I'm thinking Peter's going... Well done, Peter. That is of the Lord. That is of me, and you, you did great. You know, thinking, oh, oh, this is awesome. 
But I love Jesus' response, verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, for those of you who are scratching the math out on your, your notes right now, that, that's 490, okay? Actually, the phrase 70 times seven was a Hebrew idiom, which simply applies an endless number of times. It's like saying to infinity and beyond. I thought about telling my study that. The forgiveness to infinity and beyond. Because here's the deal. If you've started counting how many times you've forgiven someone, sooner or later, you're going to lose count. That's 10, that's 11, that's 13, that's 10, that's, that's, you know. And by the way, the Bible says love doesn't keep track of suffered wrongs, 1 Corinthians 13. And it's not like, okay, that's 491. You're done, buddy. You are done. Lights out. I'm all over you like a coat of paint. Like white on rice. Your history, man. No, the idea is that you keep going, Peter. It's infinite. It's as many times as they sin against you and they ask you for your forgiveness. You're lenient to them. Now, before we move on and read the illustration that Jesus gives to us to make his point, let me ask you a question this morning. How many times can you forgive someone who sinned against you? Let me say that again. How many times can you forgive someone who sins against you? I mean, they, they sinned against you. An actual sin against you. What they did was a sin. Maybe they sinned against you by lying to you. And you confronted them. And they confessed and they said, you're right, I lied to you, please forgive me. All right, I forgive you. You see, the next day, they lie to you again. All right, I forgive you again. Then the next day come and they lie to you again. Okay, I forgive you. And then three days in a row, they've lied to you. How much is enough? Let's think of another sin. Let's say someone steals something from you. Let's say they steal your car. You say they can have it. I've been wanting to get a new one anyway. No, let's, let's say they steal your car. You know, it, it, it's sitting outside your front door and they take and they go running around. They use all the gas out of it and then they park it back in your driveway. And here's your car. Sorry, I took it. Well, don't do that again. All right, I won't do it again. Sorry. Then the next day, they get up, they get your car, and they go around again. And the third day, they go around again. And, and I mean, how much is enough? I mean, I can certainly stand there with Peter in agreement and say, Lord, when will enough be enough? Isn't seven times being pretty generous? And then Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. How's that, Peter? Again, Peter must have thought, 490? How am I supposed to keep track? But that's the point. We're just to keep forgiving and forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. Now, with that in mind... You must keep in mind the administration of that forgiveness. Step one, you deal with it within your heart. You immediately forgive. Step two, you got to confront that brother. Hey, I forgive you, but they got to know what they're being forgiven for. They need to know what they did was sin and it was wrong. And step three, you tell them you're forgiven and help them not to do it again. Sooner or later, you're going to have to get a better lock on your garage door so they don't come in and steal your car over and over again. But you see, we're talking about restoration here. And we're dealing with sin and we're dealing with forgiveness. There can be no restoration unless there's repentance and forgiveness. Now, let's look at it from a different perspective. What if Peter's question was, Lord, I sinned against my brother a bunch of times. How often should he forgive me? I'm sure Peter said, 70 times 7, they need to, he needs to forgive me. I mean, we always want to be forgiven, Right? I mean, I can't think of any time in my life where I've done something wrong and I've gone to the person and I've asked for forgiveness that I didn't want to receive complete forgiveness. I mean, I've never said, boy, I hope they don't forgive me because I want to harbor some animosity towards these guys and, and bitterness and, oh, I just don't like them. No, we don't do that. 
We desire forgiveness. I want it. I want people to forgive me no matter what foolish thing I've done. I always want forgiveness. I want to know that my, my heart is, is clean with my fellow brother or sister. More than that, I want to know that my heart is right before the Lord. So Jesus basically says, for as many times as they sin against you, you keep on forgiving them. Now, we, we've been somewhat silly in our illustrations if someone continues to take your car to lie to you, but I love the fact that Jesus actually takes the time to give a, a perfect illustration from a heavenly perspective. Look now at verses 23 through 35. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that the payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me. I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. I don't know if he said it that way. Pay me, won't you? I don't know how he said it, but verse 29. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you. And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. From his heart. Forgive from his heart. These are serious words here. We see a debtor, someone who owed what might be considered today as an unpayable amount, several million dollars. In those days, it would take someone 20 years of work just to earn one single talent. So for this man to have to pay back 10,000 talents, it would take him 200,000 years. So we're talking about a, a, a lot of money here. And so he's talking somewhat without thinking because there's certainly no way he could pay that total amount back. And so the king, looking at his situation, says, I tell you what, I'm going to have pity on you. I will forgive you. Now what happens next is interesting because the guy moves from a debtor to a creditor. A debtor to a creditor. He owed the king. The king canceled his debt. Now he finds himself in the position of being a collector, you know, going into what someone owes him. Even though he's had the opportunity himself to cancel all debts and not collect on all debts, and that is what you would think that he would have done. But no. So what happens then next, he moves from a debtor to a creditor to a prisoner. A prisoner. Yeah, he was delivered to the torturers, Jesus said. Let me tell you, that's the same thing that takes place in our lives when it comes to unforgiveness. We put ourselves in solitary confinement when we choose to carry hearts of unforgiveness. We put ourselves in prison. We torture ourselves. And I think we all know people who are in, a, in torment and in prison because they will not forgive someone who's wronged them. There's, they're no longer free. They're, they're, instead, they're, they're restricted. They're tormented. They're uptight. They're tense. They're angry. They're bitter. They're harsh. See, someone sins against us and instead of biblically confronting them with it, we harbor it in our hearts and we choose not to forgive and we choose not to forget. 
And then we find ourselves losing what might have been a very good relationship for the sake of our own stupid pride. And we continue with one relationship after another. Well, I won't talk to you anymore because you wronged me. And I won't talk to you anymore because you wronged me. And I won't talk to you anymore because you wronged me. And, and you haven't talked to your dad in how many years? You haven't talked to your son or daughter in how long? That neighbor, that friend, that brother, that sister, are you still harboring a grudge? And now you become a prisoner of your own words because you've decided that you'd rather do anything else but forgive that person. Do you see how you put yourself in that position of becoming a prisoner of your bad attitude? This man was forgiven so much and he didn't realize all that he was forgiven of and therefore he couldn't share the forgiveness in the same way to others. Folks, Christians, fellow believers in Jesus Christ, do you know what we have been forgiven of? We have been forgiven of hell. Because of Jesus Christ, we've been forgiven of every sin and that will keep us out of hell. And if you study God's word and understand what kind of place hell is, you will value that. You'll understand all that we've been forgiven of. When you see yourself destined to spend eternity there and God forgiving you and bringing you into his kingdom and that you are unwilling to forgive someone who has wronged you, then what's wrong? What's wrong with us? He's forgiven us so much. There's a book I have in my library written by Oliver Green, an old-time Baptist pastor, and he devoted a whole chapter of this book on the subject of hell. And the chapter is called, Why I Am Thankful I'm Not Going to Hell. And he says, for one reason, he says, why I'm thankful I'm not going to hell. He says, quote, is that there is no fellowship or companionship there. You may rest assured that if you drop into hell in the next five minutes, you will be unwelcomed and unwanted. There's no welcoming committee in hell, no fellowship to enjoy. Every poor soul in the regions of the damned is so occupied with personal pain and torment that there is no time to sympathize with others. He goes on, why I'm thankful I'm not going to hell, because there is eternal torment there. Torment means pain, and although I have suffered a great deal of pain in recent years, I am not one who can bear it with patience and grace. I believe hell is just what the Bible declares it to be, a burning inferno, a place filled with literal fire. And if hell is not filled with fire, as we know fire, then it is much worse than fire. If fire is only the symbol of what hell is, then hell is worse than the fire that symbolizes it. There's no better way to put it, folks. You and I, as believers, have been forgiving of, forgiven of hell. And that's why it seems to me that Jesus specifically says in verse 35, and the reason he treats it with such seriousness, when he says, So my heavenly Father also will do to you if you each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. You know, it says from his heart. I've seen and I know from experience that we have a tendency to forgive from our heads. And not from our hearts. No, the wife will say after an argument, well, I forgive you. We've settled that argument. But then for the next two hours, she says nothing. It's that the silent treatment. Why are you so quiet, honey? Oh, nothing. Everything's fine. I'm just busy doing my thing. No, you forgave from the mind, but from the mouth, but not from the heart. Otherwise, you'd be talking again. Things would be, be going on as, as normal. Or the husband to the wife, the exact same circumstances. But now... He's decided he's going to change the plans for next week. Now suddenly, instead of going down to the lake as promised, well, we're just going to stay home and get some work done around the house. Now is that because we just had an argument and we still haven't settled things? Oh, no, 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 no. I've just changed my mind. No, you know, deep in your heart that he's just holding a grudge. You're just hanging on to that unforgiveness over your head. 
But that's not forgiveness from the heart and there's still a serious problem. See, forgiveness from the heart is seeing one another as Christ sees us. It's realizing there is just dumb things that we're going to do and in spite of all those dumb things, we are going to continue to love because that's something that God has commanded us to do. That's forgiveness. It's the same type of forgiveness that was displayed upon the cross at Calvary as Jesus is hanging there in front of all those that are spitting at Him and throwing insults at Him and He looks down from the cross and He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's a phrase that we need to apply in our own homes. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Wife comes home with a gallon of milk and you got two in the, in the fridge and you say, what is the matter with you? Do you think we're made of money? You know, just throw it around. And she says, no, honey, I just planned to buy that third gallon of milk I wanted in the refrigerator just to see it sour, you know. No, we need to apply those words. I forgive you. I know that you just didn't know that that wasn't the plan. Wife realized when your husband's misplaced his keys, he wasn't devising a scheme to somehow hide them from you for a time just so he doesn't have to go to your mother's house. Okay, maybe he was. But, but uh, let's just say, maybe he didn't do it on purpose. Apply the words. Father, I, I, I forgive you. I know you just didn't know that it wasn't the plan. Now, maybe your kids, you know, for some of the younger generations, you're playing a video game and your kid gets in front of you or you're, you're watching TV as a dad and, and, and the kid just stands right in front of you and they say, get out of the way. I'm trying to watch this program. And the kid says, well, yeah, dad, actually, I, I want to stand in front of you because I just wanted to make you so angry to see you blow your top and then yell at me. No, it was a dumb little mistake. But no, to us, man, it's major warfare in the home. It really is. It's those dumb little stupid things that it now becomes a place of tension. And now we're going to argue. And we're going to bring something up from last week. And, and since we still have something from last week to argue about. And then when she brings up something from last week, then you're going to bring up something from two weeks ago. And it's World War III in the home. What's the problem? Nobody's forgiving anybody. Listen, we're going to do dumb things because... We're sinners, born-again sinners. We're natural creations. We make mistakes. We live in a sinful world. And if we realize that, then we will walk around the house saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive her. She didn't know that she did that. Oh, Lord, forgive them. They didn't know. And you do the same to the kids, and the kids do the same to you. And, and everybody's forgiving one another. No one's jumping to conclusions. And God is glorified. And there's peace in the home. And the whole attitude of forgiveness just begins to permeate the whole house. It's sweet. So that when somebody does something dumb and it's a little bit out of the ordinary, you automatically forgive. See, as many times as I have done things wrong, I know I can go to the Lord and I know that He doesn't hold it over my head. He forgives me. That is ultimately what we all want, is it not? We want forgiveness. See, these are areas that we grow as a church it's where we see the areas of sin in our lives and we learn to seek for forgiveness and we turn when we start to live lives that are they're more holy and more set apart for the Lord. You know, I love this chapter here because it's just like the heart of God to maintain the flow right through the chapter. Jesus talks about the childlike heart and keeping ourselves humble. And then talks about honesty and being able to go to one another in sin and dealing with, with an honest, in an honest, loving way. And then he moves right into forgiveness and how many times we should forgive. Because he knows, we know chapter 19 is coming. And all those same principles need to apply as we get to the subject of marriage in chapter 19. 
See, Matthew has arranged the scriptures in such that we find ourselves talking about marriage right after we've talked about humility, honesty, and then forgiveness. I think it's perfectly placed here. And we're going to look at that next time. But today, this was a simple lesson. God was reminding us that since God has forgiven us, we so ought to be forgiving others. General Oglethorpe once said to John Wesley, I never forgive and I never forget. To which Wesley replied, Then, sir, I hope you never sinned. And, and again, in Jesus' illustration, the problem was that this servant, though he was forgiven of this great debt, though he had accepted the forgiveness, he hadn't really experienced that forgiveness in his heart. He didn't come with a real sense of unworthiness. He actually thought he could pay off the debt. Verse 26, Master, have patience with me and I'll pay it off. I'll pay you all, it says. Come on, how is he going to do that? It's millions and millions of dollars in, in our time. He did not realize that he owed a debt that he could never pay. He didn't come in total brokenness. And when he was forgiven, he hadn't really experienced true forgiveness, and so he really wasn't forgiving to others. What a lesson for us. Charles Spurgeon once said, I come to the cross to be forgiven. I stay at the cross to be forgiving. How important that is. Has God forgiven you as, as He cleansed you from all your sins? Has He canceled your debt, the debt that you could never pay back? How is it that we can then turn and be so cruel and so harsh and so unforgiving towards those who have sinned against us? That's what Jesus is telling us in this story. He is saying that, that if you're not forgiving others, it's an indication that you have not been forgiven yourself. And if you've not been forgiven, verse 34 says, And His Master was angry and delivered Him to the torturers until He should pay all that was due to Him. He was handed over to the tormentors to pay every debt he ever owed. I'm so thankful that Jesus paid my debt. My debt debt has been wiped clean. And yet I've heard Christians say, Oh, I forgive them. I just can't forget what they've done to me. Well, then you haven't forgiven them. If we're going to forgive, we're going to forgive as God forgives. We're told in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. We're told in Isaiah 43, 25, I, yes, I alone will blot out your sins for my own sake and will never think of them again. God forgives and forgets. So what do you mean that you'll never, you'll forgive, you'll never forget? See, if we just simply look at what Jesus has forgiven us for, so great a debt, and realize how merciful and kind and gracious God has been not to bring up our sin over and over again in our lives, then I believe that God will give us the strength through His Holy Spirit to forgive those that have sinned against us. Maybe this morning you're living uh, in unforgiveness. Maybe you've been living in bitterness and hatred and, and, and a feeling that, that, that I don't need to forgive them because they were wrong and they need to ask me forgiveness. And Listen, Jesus would say to you this morning, you need to practice humility, you need to practice honesty, and you need to, be, to practice forgiveness. You need to do that in your marriage. You need to do that in your home. You need to do that at church. Maybe you see yourself in this story. Maybe you've been hurt so badly that you just can't forgive. Maybe you're in prison, robbed of joy and peace, but you don't know how to get out. The answer lies in this passage. The king commanded that the servant remain in prison until he paid his debt. But how could the servant earn money to pay his debt if he was in prison? He couldn't. The only way he could get out of prison was go back to that master and say, I was wrong. I never should have gone to that man and, and asked him to pay up to me. Would you forgive me of that? I am so wrong. 
and ask forgiveness again. And here's what we know. As long as you are living and breathing and alive on this earth, you can find forgiveness from God. Romans 4, verse 7 and 8 says this, Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose sin is no longer counted against them by the Lord. Maybe there are some here that you're struggling with the fact that God has forgiven you. Maybe you're still dealing with the guilt of your sin. You can't accept the fact that that you're forgiven. There's a story I found about a woman that phoned into a Christian radio program that, that might help. She said this, I had an abortion 17 years ago and I have asked forgiveness from God every single day for 17 years. And she wanted to know if God would ever forgive her and ask her if she was going to hell for it. Here's what the talk show host said. She said, how would you like it if someone who did something wrong to you comes knocking at your door the next day to ask for forgiveness? You forgive the person and everything is cleared up on your part. But the next day the person shows up at your door and asks forgiveness again. You remind her that you already forgave her the day before she leaves, but returns the next day, knocks on your door and again asks for forgiveness. Again, you remind her, I forgave you two days ago. Don't you remember? Don't you believe what I said? This goes on day after day after day for 17 years. Wouldn't you be frustrated because she didn't trust your word? The lady on the phone said, I never thought of it that way before. And the host replied, well, when you asked Jesus to save you, he forgave you of all your sins. Confession means to say the same thing. You need to say the same thing as what God says about your sins. He died for every one of them. When we confess our sins, we not only admit we have done them, but we agree with God that Jesus died. For them. See, confession declares that the blood of Jesus is more powerful than the guilt that haunts us. 1 John 1 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from some of unrighteousness. A few unrighteous things. No, of all unrighteousness, all, absolutely everything. Finally, as we get ready to close, I know this wasn't a Father's Day study, but I want to kind of apply this to a Father's Day study. Maybe you've never had a father around. Maybe he's failed you. Maybe Father's Day is really hard for you. Maybe you've got a lot of anger. Then remember three things. Number one, you have a perfect father in heaven who will never fail you. He will never fail you. Listen, all dads will fail. Sometimes more than others, we, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll fail, we'll fall. Swinging my little girl in the mirror ground too fast. Man, I blew it. Listen, God is, is a perfect father. He's a good, good father. And then we're looking for, he cares you so much that he sent his son to die to rescue us. God wants to heal your hurt. Don't be afraid to be honest with God. Don't be afraid to tell him your struggle with forgiveness. Pour it all out to him and ask him for what you need. Number two, forgiveness is for you, not your dad. Forgiving our fathers can be one of the hardest things we do. Our dads are supposed to protect us, not, not hurt us. And when they don't, when they don't, when they not only fail to protect us, but hurt us themselves, it's like a rock hitting a windshield. Just starts at a little crack and then eventually it spreads to every, every area of our lives. And it's hard to forgive him when he doesn't even care. When he doesn't deserve forgiveness. That's probably true, but we didn't deserve forgiveness either. And God still forgave us. And again, because we're forgiven, Jesus commands us to forgive. Now that doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean we feel like forgiving. And it doesn't mean we're letting him 
get away with it. It means we're choosing not to hold bitterness and unforgiveness in our hearts. And finally, number three, our most profound point on Father's Day in the study. Number three, if you're not dead, God's not done. If you're not dead, God's not done. I mean, that's the truth there. If, you're, if your dad's not dead, then there's still hope for a restored relationship. God is a God of miracles. God is a God of, of reconciliation. He wants to heal your relationship with your dad. He wants to maybe heal your relationship with your son. Maybe it is a son or a daughter that, that, that you've had a broken relationship for. Listen, keep asking, keep, keep seeking, keep asking the Lord. Keep praying for your dad to meet Jesus, to come to Christ, or your kids to come to Christ. And if they do, keep praying for them to grow in their walk with the Lord. Only Jesus can bring our loved ones to repentance. So keep asking Him to work in that relationship. And finally, if you've had a painful relationship with your dad and he's no longer here, no longer around, know that God doesn't waste pain. God wants to do something amazingly and in and through you to bring good out of your hurt and the pain that you've gone through. He wants to bring healing in your life. And He wants to work through you to bring healing to other people's lives. Listen, what if this Father's Day we all give ourselves a present? Moms, dads, single. What if this Father's Day becomes a celebration of the day we put down the bitterness, we pick up forgiveness and hope, and step into that abundant life our perfect Father promises us? If there's reconciliation that needs to take place, is there some forgiveness that needs to be sought? I would encourage you this morning to seek after it, not just because it's Father's Day, but it's because that's what God has called all of us to do. And if you need to go and ask forgiveness, then do it today. If you need to, 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 to forgive someone, go and ask, and God will bless you. God will do that work in our lives as we seek to please Him first. God can work all these things out for good in our lives. Finally, as we close... We do this every, every Father's Day. It's, I want to pray for all you dads here this morning, but I want to do something a little bit different. I, I want to start with the great-grandfathers. If you're a great-grandfather, why don't you stand up this morning because I want to pray for you. Any great-grandfathers here this morning? We had about five first service. So this is just a younger crowd. Oh, there's one. Awesome. Great-grandfather. Awesome. You're great. Okay, awesome. How, how many grandfathers? If you're grand, Stay standing. How many grandfathers stand up? If you're a grandpa, stand up. I get to stand up this year. Okay, finally, if you're a dad, stand up if you're a dad. Awesome. I want to pray for all these dads. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for every man that is standing in this room right now, Lord. They truly are uh, the unsung heroes of our country today. Lord, men that have honored their commitments to you and to their wives and to their children. Lord, they're, they're living upright lives by, by evidence that they're here, that they're, they're godly, Lord. They're men of integrity, men of your word. Bless them today, I pray. Continue to give them wisdom. Continue to keep your hand upon each one of us, Lord, that we would be great grandfathers, great fathers and, and, and dads, Lord, that we can leave a legacy to our children of what it truly means to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Father, finally, I pray for all of us here uh, this morning. If there is a need that for forgiveness or to be forgiven, Lord, that we would not wait another moment. That we would make that phone call. We would set up that time to meet. We would do whatever it takes, Lord, 
to not hold unforgiveness in our hearts. We know, Lord, how serious you take this. And Lord, we want to be obedient to what we've just read, what we've just studied, that we might glorify you, Lord, to be not only hearers of your word, but doers of your word as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.